Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Chicago on March 1st, 2012. The recording features Nikki Giovanni, Thomas Sayers Ellis, and Allison Myers. Now you will hear Allison Myers provide an introduction. Welcome everyone. Thanks so much for being here. It's my great privilege to introduce today's program, A Legacy Conversation with Nikki Giovanni. Established in 2001, Cave Conum's Legacy Conversations highlight the lives, thought, and art of preeminent poets and scholars who have played historic roles in African-American poetry. We are deeply gratified that Nikki is adding her voice to a series that documents essential literary and cultural history. With a career that has spanned five decades and seen the publication of over 15 volumes of poetry and additional 12 collections for children, including the perennially popular Ego Tripping and other poems for young people, and numerous other works, including recordings, essays, and anthologies. Nikki remains one of the country's most influential poets. Her wide-ranging, ever-evolving, engaged art enlarges and enriches the American canon. She has received many awards and accolades, including multiple NAACP Image Awards, the Langston Hughes Award for Distinguished Contribution to Arts and Letters, the Rosa Parks Women of Courage Award, and over 20 honorary degrees from colleges and universities around the country. She is a professor at Virginia Tech, where she does visionary work. In his interview today, Thomas Sayers Ellis will ask Nikki to reflect on her achievements, challenges, aspirations, poetics, and history. Like Nikki, Thomas's poetry engages with the contradictions and inequities of American life, while also celebrating transformational possibilities and love. His debut volume, The Maverick Room, received the Mrs. Giles Whiting Writers Award and the John C. Zacharias First Book Award. About his second full-length collection, Skin, Ink, Identity, Repair Poems, Robin D.G. Kelly has said, Ellis has something to say about the moment we're in, and he is that rare breed of poet, the kind whose works will be studied for generations to come. A professor of creative writing at Sarah Lawrence College and a faculty member of the Lesley University Low Residency MFA program, Thomas co-founded the seminally important Dark Room Collective. Nikki will begin the program with a 15-minute reading, after which she will join Thomas for a lively 40-minute conversation. Please join me now in welcoming two brilliant poets of our time, Nikki Giovanni and Thomas Sayers-Ellis. Thank you very much. I'm totally delighted uh, to be here. I've been walking on air lately because we at Virginia Tech, it started because of a sadness. Slade, Ford, uh, Slade Morrison died. And uh, when, when Slade died, we were trying to figure out something to do with Tony because, you know, you just don't expect to lose a kid. And Tony was being very sad, of course. And I went down to see Maya because we had done the Lucille Clifton reading and Maya wasn't able to join us through a misunderstanding, as it turned out. And so I went down to see Maya and I said, what, what are we going to, what, what can we do for Tony? And she said, I, you know, Maya's got that I did something. I had a dinner for Tony. And I said, yeah, but you didn't invite me, Maya. So uh, <laughs> you have to call him out sometime. So um, <laughs> I love her. And I said, no, what are we going to do? Because I, it's not something that I wanted to do, but something I thought we should do. Because if it was just me, it would just be an ego trip. Everybody would say, Nikki, crazy. But if we put together, you know it. You have to, love, you know, I love black people, but I know us. And <laughs> so what we were doing is Maya and I, with our good friend and, and, and your sister Chicago and Joanne Gabin, who uh, is the creator of the Furious Flower Poetry Center, we needed Joanne because Joanne is organized and neither Maya and I are. So we put that together and we thought, well, let's do it. So I went up to ask Tony, what would she think about us doing something. You recall, and I know we all do, that at the beginning of Sula, which is one of my favorite novels, uh, the dedication says it is sheer good fortune to miss someone before they're gone. And we thought, let us let Tony know that we love her 
before she's gone. If something would happen to Tony, something happened to Maya, then we would all be standing around and saying, oh, didn't you love that line? Or Remember when she said, so I thought, well, why not just do it while she's there? And we were going to have it at Wake Forest because that's Maya's home and we thought it would be easier. But Maya made the decision that it would be actually, and she had a good point, it would be easier for her to take that really great bus of hers and come to Virginia Tech. And since Virginia Tech is an engineering college, we are, I said to my chief engineer, I, I want a lift. We're now calling it the Morrison Lift. I know that they'll make a fortune out of it. Tony and I will be broke and old, and they'll be selling the lift because that's what white folks do, but it's all right. <laughs> it's perfectly all right. And as most of us know, it's not a secret, um, Maya is, is, is needing oxygen, so we're going to run the oxygen under so we can run it up so that she can have that available. We intend to take very good care of the ladies. I'm saying this here because we are writers in this room, and of course we are thrilled. I know some of us will be reading with us, some of us have committed to reading with us, and anybody that wants to come, because we could not possibly afford to put Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou on stage together, it had to be free. Because if the girls are free, then everything else is free. So it is a first come, first serve in terms of the ticket. We should be up on the web by, uh, by May, sometime in May. You should be able to come to Virginia Tech and you should see it. And we're hoping that people join us because we, why wouldn't we have this joyous celebration of these two iconic ladies while they are both here to hear the applause. So I just wanted to share that. I've just been thrilled about it and I just wanted to share that. Miss Finney just reminded me, I didn't give the date. The date is Tuesday because we are a football powerhouse and I learned you must never do anything on football days. As we all know, Thursday night football, Friday night high school, Saturday night college, Sunday night NFL, Monday night NFL, leaving us with Tuesday or Wednesday. So <laughs> we're doing it on Tuesday so that the football kids don't have to get ready for Thursday. So it's Tuesday, October 16th, 2012 in Blacksburg, Virginia. And I hope to see everybody. I really, really do. I'm also doing something else because I literally woke up one morning and it was one of those trading places moments. Remember in trading places when Dan Ackrod woke up and he goes like uh, hog bellies or something like that. Well, I woke up one morning and went Ruby D. Because I had the book, this, this, this is the reading of the 100 African-American, the 100 best African-American uh, poems, but I cheated. And I cheated because if I had only done 100 African-American poets, I would have started with, with uh, actually Phyllis Wheatley, dropped down into Dunbar, Du Bois, uh, 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 um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, run through the Renaissance, because you get 100 from Langston if you're not careful, and run out on the, uh, I'd been right there at the end with, with uh, Imam Baraka, and if I really pushed it, maybe uh, Tupac Shakur, but that'd be it. And I thought, no, there's a reason, as we all know, that church has Sunday school. If you don't have Sunday school, you're not going to have church. So I really did want to find a way to bring the young people in. So I just decided the fourth of this book is going to be young people, no matter what. I know you all are right. You say, well, Nikki, how do you know they're the best? My question is, how do you know they're not? <laughs> I had 10 people in this book who have never been published before. And again, you just have to keep opening these doors. And some of you will find yourselves in a position, you're doing anthologies, and you'll be saying to yourself, well, I was told, if you only do what you were told to do, in the words of the great Stevie Wonder, you haven't done nothing. You have to find a way to make it your own. And so what I have in this book of the 100 Best African American Poems is 211 poems. <laughs> but I wanted to do a reading because I wanted the kids to be able to hear. And so we did. We, had, we invited Ruby Dee, who was my soror and, and one of the, America's great actresses down, and wasn't Viola. Aren't you heartbroken? Speaking of great actresses, you know, I'm in a good mood, okay? But, no, I am. I just couldn't believe USA Today could actually have a headline to say that Meryl Streep, who was a nice person, but Meryl Streep is overdue. She's the most decorated actress in America. She had 17 nominations, two Academy Awards. She's overdue, but Viola's not? What kind of crap is that? You know, people wonder why you get tired of white people. That makes you crazy. <laughs> it makes you crazy. 
Viola was totally brilliant in that film, just totally brilliant, and somebody should be ashamed, because Meryl Streep said Viola's the best. That's all she could do. She couldn't vote but one time, so no matter what. But it, it just made me crazy. But I, I wanted Ruby. And so I called her, and I said, Ruby, you know, what would it take to get you to come to Virginia Tech? And she, you know, for those of you who know, hey, just, just ask. And so I did. That, that's, a, that's a good Ruby. I did. And then I called up my, my good friend and, and one of America's great Broadway actresses, Novella Nelson. And I said, Novella, Ruby's coming down. Will you come down? And so Novella said, oh, Ruby's going to come. I said, okay, good. So I have that. <laughs> I asked our president at Virginia Tech, Charles Steger. And Charles likes me, but you know how you know people see you and you can see that they're trying to, like, turn around quickly like they didn't see you? <laughs> He does that. He was walking down the sidewalk, and I thought, there, I got him. And I could see him trying to turn, and he just came. I said, Dr. Steger, will you read? And he said, okay, I'll read. Ask, well, his, his, his girl is Sandy. He said, tell Sandy, put on the cover, and I did. And then the next day, I went back, and I said, Dr. Steger, Ruby D is coming. Now, you know how long this man has known me? 24 years. I'm, you know, maybe not as big as Ruby D, but damn it, I'm a star. <laughs> I said, Ruby D, and he's like, Ruby D? It's coming to our campus? What can I do? I mean, it's like, and it's like, wow. I mean, okay, I accept that. You know, you have to know your place. But we went into the studio and we recorded. All of us who you see here made, made this a part of the recording. And again, it's something that for those of you who don't have it, and especially those of you who are teaching poetry, I think it's wonderful because we get these various voices. Black poetry is not just about black people, and it's not just for black people. So we have black and white men and women. We have a variety of things. The only thing that Ruby wanted was Gwendolyn Brooks. She said, I want to read Gwendolyn Brooks. So you know that everybody wanted to read Gwendolyn Brooks. And I did. I'm a good producer. And I said, you can read Gwendolyn Brooks if your name is Ruby D. And if not... <laughs> you can't. Novella is reading Tupac, and she does an incredible, incredible job uh, with doing that. Charles, of course, being the president of Virginia Tech, starts our program, starts this program, with the iconic Langston Hughes, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. And I could think of no one better to read, My soul has grown deep like the rivers than the president of our university because you are aware of the tragedy that Virginia Tech befell, or that befell Virginia Tech. So I have now used up most of my time, <laughs> but I wanted to share this. I'm a native Tennessean. I was born there. During the age of segregation, when you couldn't go to the same amusement park or the same movie theater, when the white guys would cruise up and down the streets and call out to you, when the black guys were afraid of being lynched. But we went to church each Sunday and we sang a precious song. And we found a way not to survive. Anything can survive, but to thrive and believe and hope. I'm a native Tennessean. I was born there, but I was only two months old when my mother and father moved my sister and me to Cincinnati during the age of segregation, when Dow drug stores wouldn't serve us, when the neighborhoods were redlined, but at least mommy could get a job teaching and daddy could get a job behind a desk. And after all, if you are a college graduate, that's the least you can expect. Though the Pullman porters took us south each summer and watched over us with an unfailing faith and got us from there to here. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. I was born there, in the only state in rebellion that didn't have to undergo reconstruction, in the volunteer state that sent as many from one side as another, in an area where, if I just have to have a car break down, I would prefer any holler to any city neighborhood. But there was no work and no way, and the chronic angers that flared would chase us to Ohio. We were not lies crossing the river, just four people, two in love and two who were loved, who needed to put a rest to the rage. But the rage stayed, and someone had to go. I chose me. But I was born there, so the going was a coming. I'm a native Tennessean. I take no joy in Davy Crockett nor Jim Bowie. They were wrong to be at the, at the Alamo. They were wrong to fight for that theft. I love James Adji. I love Thunder Road, though I, a native Tennessean, was not allowed to play a bit part when the crew came to town to film the movie. Ingrid Bergman and Anthony Quinn came to take a walk in the spring rain. And despite it all, I like Andrew Jackson. At least he knew the big guys were wrong. I'm a native Tennessean. I graduated Fisk University in Nashville. I know that the freedmen paid for that school. Nobody gave them anything. Pennies and nickels and prayer and determination, the freedmen paid for it, and many others. I know the American Missionary Society was wrong. They took that money that the Jubilee Singers made to save Fisk and used it for other purposes. 
I was educated by the singers of those songs. I love those songs. How could I not love Nashville? How could I not love Dinah Shore, who invited the Jubilee singers to sing at the Grand Ole Opry, then had to hear the rumors? She sang on, sang until she saw the USA in her Chevrolet. I once saw her on a plane. I was going to the cabin. She was in first class. I said, hey. She smiled and said, hey, back. When I got Georgia on my mind, I rode the Chattanooga Choo Choo to Lookout Mountain. I saw Memphis and was enchanted. From the mighty Mississippi gracefully turning all red to Bill Street Beats at midnight. All those blues from so many bloods that decided to take to turn my blues to Memphis gold. W.C. Handy, Bobby Blue Bland, B.B. King, the late, great Johnny Ace, stacks and stacks of music, American music. The Athens of the South held Tennessee music, but Memphis put the tears to the lonely and crossed over. Everybody wants to rock to my rhythm. I am Memphis. I heard the shots that took Martin. I know who killed the king. I'm a native Tennessean. I know what it is to be free. I am singing the country blues. I am whittling a wooden doll. I am underground mining cold. I am running moonshine. I'm a white boy with a banjo, native to West Africa. I am a black boy with a twang, native to the hills. I am smart. I am cool. I am unafraid. I am free. Yeah, I am a native Tennessean. Thank you. I um, was invited and, and thrilled to be so. Um, the Smithsonian, the National Portrait Gallery, is doing a um, uh, retrospective. I guess it's the 150th year of the Civil War or something like that. And they invited 10 poems, and I'm very pleased to be uh, among them. I wrote a, a poem that I'd like to share. It's not up yet, uh, but I think it's going to be okay. I know the title will have to change because I know you're not allowed to do titles like this in America. The title is Note to the South colon, you lost. <laughs> ah, people forget. <laughs> the buzz of the flies almost were a lullaby, rocking the dead to a restful place. You couldn't hear the ants, so they were there, clearly there, in the eyes, the mouths, any wound or soft tissue. The worms had come, understanding those which were not trampled would have a great feast. The grasses had no choice but to drink down the blood and bits of flesh that was ground into them. In the future, there would be girls, not field rats, who would follow the soldiers into the trenches. In the future, there would be single-engine airplanes dropping bombs. And then, in the scientific imagination of the 21st century, there would be men and women pushing buttons, making war clean and distant. But today, on this battlefield, the deadliest of this war, the songbirds had been frightened off. The turkey buzzards retreated to watch. Deer, skunk, raccoons, possum, groundhogs gathered to let the smoke clear and only the moans of the almost dead and the quiet march of lice gave cadence to this concert of sacrifice for freedom. And because little old ladies fall in love, I wanted to close on the love poem. And uh, it's why, for those of you who have grandmothers, you must call before you go. <laughs> Everybody thinks you just drop in on your grandmother. You're going to be surprised and shocked. <laughs> That's the truth. I'm a nature lover. This is a poem called Migrations. When the sun returns to the Arctic Circle from its winter rest, the grasses sprout, seducing the winged and the hoofed. Polar bears and their cubs must flee before the ice breaks up, although others begin a northern journey. The snow goose flies from the Gulf of Mexico to mate and birth her young. Two million Mongolian gazelles move over the tundra, where each gives birth at the same time, defying the will of the predators who would consume the gazelle's future, though only, of course, to provide nourishment for their own young predators. Let's not judge too harshly. Salmon swim upstream, jumping falls, and grizzly bears. Grasshoppers, ignoring the advice of ants, make music to celebrate winter's end. Monarch butterflies, leaving the safety of Zuadnego, forge north, beginning the longest winged journey of spring. With only the hope of warmth, 
and the promise of grasses, they unflinchingly face hunger, thirst, predators, winds, rains, uncertainties, as would I for you. So before I even knew who you were, I mean, what you look like, I, um, I knew your name. And uh, we used to say in our church, you know, how does one get over? And I think I know how you got over. And I'm going to put it in tradition. I'm going to say, you have, you have a great name. That's an amazing name. So I want you to hear your name from the audience really quickly. On the count of three. One, two, three. It's the bomb. But a lot of the records say you were born with a junior at the end of your name. Now, I don't, I don't know. Now, I found many women who were born with a junior, and I, maybe that's sort of like a common practice in some parts of the country. But what is it, foreshadowing? Your, your parents were just creative, and your brother has an Ann? My girl. This is my sister. She was my sister. She's dead. Oh, Gary Ann. Gary Ann. Oh, so she has a Gary Ann. So how did you end up with a junior? Does that, does that even matter in the... In the, in the journey, so to speak. I, I don't think it matters, but uh, I, I think that my father knew that if he wanted a junior, he better put it on, name me after my mother and put a junior on it, because that was going to be it for her. <laughs> I, just, I just want because in the work, like, when I was, I have a book, a new book called Skinny, and you and my Angela were writers who I read over and over again yeah. when I was working on Skinny. And the thing I liked about, the thing that got into my system was the way you fight. <laughs> You know, and I know that Cassius Clay, when he became Muhammad Ali, had a, in his biography, The Greatest, he said that this is more difficult than, write, than fighting. Writing is fighting. And you're always fighting. You, you seem to always uh, pick the big battles, the battles that matter in the work. Yeah. Any of them stick out over the years? Any things that, you know, or you, know, you wish you hadn't fought for that you're glad you did fight for? Because it works into the aesthetic. I don't know. Um. <laughs> I worried about this conversation, Thomas. <laughs> I did because I'm, um, I'm only 68, and Melvin Tolson, who is a brilliant, brilliant writer, uh, says we judge a civilization in its decline. I had the um, extreme pleasure of, of being the host of Mr. Tolson when he came to, to uh, Fisk University. And, of course, Melvin, my favorite Melvin Tolson line is, when the skins are dried, the flies will go home. Mm -hmm. And it was his poem on, 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 on uh, uh, colonialism. So when we considered doing uh, a sit-down, number one, uh, Toy is an old friend, and so I, I, I definitely owed her a sit-down. And I thought, well, I don't want to judge what I've done because I want to continue to do. And I like being on the edge, and I, I like, uh, there are some people in this room who know me well enough to know, I like making mistakes, and then you figure out how you're going to handle them, and, you know, just the shit that you go through in life. And so I didn't, I, I don't think that I've fought my best battle yet. I think that my best battle is yet to come. If this program that I'm planning fails, uh, I did. I promised Dr. Steger I would resign, and, and he could tell everybody he fired me, because um, I want artists to think bigger, and that means we have to take more chances. And we are putting more and more artists in the academy, and they're being, be, becoming worried about their job, which doesn't make sense. And what the hell, you're an artist. You're not supposed to have nothing. So <laughs> you're not. So you have to go on. And, and, and uh, I don't think I fight so many battles as I'm just fearless. Yeah. Because the only thing that could happen to me is that, well, job-wise, you know, tech fires me or something like that. And... Uh, it won't be the first place that I got fired from. Actually, I got fired from my first job. I was working for a councilman, so you can imagine what that was in Cincinnati. And uh, you just have to, we have to do something because the world is being a sad place. And I just wanted to bring some, some, something joyful and, and, and meaningful with people that I love. And I really love Toni Morrison, so we're talking about Toni right now. And I'm lining up something because if it does work, I know what I'm doing next. <laughs> you know, and I'll just keep doing it, and I'll die one day, and then somebody say, Nikki, you know, you died last week, and I say, oh, and, <laughs> well, I don't think I should be the one to tell people I'm dead. Y'all have to tell me. I'm gone. You know, somebody say, Nikki, lay down now. You finish, baby, and uh, <laughs> we'll go for it.
Well, I worry about this conversation too because um, you've been interviewed a lot, and you know there's there, there there's not a lot of room left to get you differently. So that's 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 what I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, you see a lot of student work. You see a lot of work. You, yeah. you meet a lot of poets. You have a lot of people you probably you know. We think I think of poems as telephone conversations or exchanges. You you um, is the fearlessness still alive? Is there room? It, has the context changed here in America now or in the classroom? Is it fearlessness alive and well? Is it even necessary anymore? And if not, we I see a lot of student poems. In. Oh, I think one. I think that the kids are really good writers. I'm a big, big, big fan. Uh, right in here, I have my iPad. I'm a big fan of the electronic reader. I am now reading a brilliant book. I am actually rereading a brilliant book by Isabel Wilkerson called uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, which is just wonderful. And what I, my object in the classroom, actually, is to get my white students to say we. Mm. I've just been working on it, you know, because they, we're studying the Harlem Renaissance, and Isabel's book is our, our book, and I'm such a big fan, I'm trying to get her to Virginia Tech. But I'm trying to get our students to say, we migrated. And, of course, that's very hard because they're white and they think that that wasn't a we, but it is a we. And I'm trying to get our black students to recognize that it is a part of us. I'm a big fan of slavery because we, this is a, 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 an, 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 this is virgin territory. It really, really, really is. And people think that they know something about slavery because we know what the slave owners have said about it. We do not know what the slaves have said about it. We have some songs which are incredible because it's the American voice. And, of course, we have food. I mean, anybody that's in this room thinks that Kentucky Colonel knew something about frying any damn thing is crazy. <laughs> we have a cuisine. And we know that these people not only survived, but thrived mm -hmm. and became the voice. And so I'm saying to my students in terms of writing, number one, you have to, you have to look at these people with an incredible pride. Because look at what they did. And having survived 200 years of slavery, they end up in Jim Crow, which is enough to make you crazy. And, of course, everybody knew you could jump in the river and swim over to Haiti or swim out to Cuba or something. But they chose to migrate within the United States to make this country live up to its promise. And I think that that's an incredible spiritual thing that blacks have done for Americans. And I know people think, oh, you know, every time you see colored people, they just want to say they did everything. But we did. And... <laughs> No, we're wonderful. And I think that everybody's going to be a lot happier when we embrace that wonderful because then we can get to the other unknown in America is frontier woman who is totally unstudied. How does a white woman marry a white man, and we know that history, and get in a covered wagon and head west? Think about it. You talk about faith. This idiot, what was he doing on Saturday? Lynching some Negro. And then you were there... Gideon, and you're hoping he's going to be better, but your hope, we're just dealing with history here, I'm in a good mood, but your hope has made him better. And though it continues, and I'm not picking on white men because I, I, I think they're fantastic. White men are people that there's a moon up there, yeah, I won't go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, any old damn thing, they'll do it. <laughs> but what you want them to learn to do is to control those envies and, and those hatreds that they have. You want them to learn to squeeze it out. So we're all evolving is what I'm saying. I think it's just incredible. And I think American letters is not really all of this naval contemplation. And I'm really, I'm tired of vampires and I'm tired of murder. <laughs> I am. I am. And it's not, you know, I don't envy Miss Meyer or something like that. But you know, what a vegetarian blood. What the hell is that? There's only one kind of blood, and that's that somebody's given up their lives. You want to talk about vampires? Hey, how about slavery? If that isn't vampirism, I don't know what is. That's the truth. It, it absolutely is. So I'm just saying, we have things to write about. And somebody said, well, Nikki, damn, if I write about that, I won't get a bestseller. But baby, you're not going to have a bestseller anyway. You color it. Get over it. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that. I, I like you because you curse a lot. Oh, I don't curse. I mean, just damn a hell. I mean, I, I have cleaned up my axle. Uh, 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 uh. In 1972, oh, no. you received a doctor from Wilberforce University. Oh. And you walked up on that stage and said, see what my motherfuckers got me? <laughs> I want to know, what did you mean by that? Well, 
That was very nice. Wilberforce University, I'm, I am uh, a, a native Tennessean, as we know, but Wilberforce is our, um, I, I grew up in Cincinnati, and Wilberforce is our city, uh, and it's, it's the oldest black uh, university now in, in the United States. And they, um, um, I guess the term was offered me um, um, honorary degree. And I was thrilled because my father and I have had uh, many, many, many issues, and I keep trying to work a lot of them through. But with it being so close, he was able to come to Wilberforce with me to see me receive uh, my first uh, degree. I said that simply because it's true. I could still be me. And that's what I'm saying. You know, I, I doubt that... Um, I doubt that I would go to Smith College and say that because it, it, it's, it's, it's not that, you know, Smith doesn't deserve to hear motherfuckers, just that that's not appropriate. And, and I'm appropriate, but it, it wouldn't be the same thing. No, Smith, I'll tell you what Smith did. My mother, who's 4'11", this is a story, okay? 4'11", and she weighed about 90 pounds, really sweet. We went to Smith, Smith College, uh, invited me up, Maya, uh, uh, Kay Graham, Catherine Graham, and a couple of other people, and we were doing this panel. And my mother was the only woman there who didn't have a fur coat. Mm. And I looked around and I thought, uh-uh, no, this, this, this will not happen. My mother will not go and see women six feet tall, Maya's six feet tall, Kay Graham is six feet tall, in fur coats down to the ground, and she don't have one. We went back home Monday, and I called the fur shop. <laughs> and I went down and I picked out all female furs. I didn't care how it was going to get paid for, I didn't care when, that my mother is going to have a fur coat. And she did. And I'm just sharing that because at Smith, that's what I learned. And every time you learn something, you have to do it. I don't have that interest. I do now have a fur coat because I couldn't let my mother have a fur coat. <laughs> well, that's tacky looking. I go in in a sweater and say, oh, the bitch had to give up her coat so her mother can't, like, you can't do that. But, and I'm just saying this to the young people. There are things that you're just going to do no matter what anybody says. You know, and she was going to have a Cadillac, too, because she's colored. And I thought, oh, no, no, that's my mother. She has to have a Cadillac. Of course, she now knows. She's passed, but Mommy's last car was, of course, a Peugeot. But you have to have a Cadillac because you grow up hearing about Cadillacs, and you can't afford them. And it's like, no, that's my mother. She can have a Cadillac because I don't care about those things. It's amazing what I don't care about. Some of you in this room know me. But I'm not going to have my mother not having what every other mother has, and I don't want to hear it. So that's your story. And I know that you say, because she's colored, you make a distinction. Because we, we fail sometimes. We always say, oh, black is many things, and blackness is many things. But sometimes in the aesthetic and the work, in the aesthetic and the work, in the poem, we, we, we don't make the distinction between a Negro poem or a colored poem or a black poem or African-American poem. And it's just like, oh, it's me, so it's black. But can those distinctions be practiced and taught? Do they come from a specific place in the individual? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we were talking about Toy and I. We were talking about that at, um, at lunch. I, I don't know. I just don't think that anybody could maybe read me and not think somebody colored wrote that. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I don't know, and it's not just because, you know, you, you get a damn or hell or you pick on white people because they do something dumb. I, I, I think that there is uh, just something that it, it should be you. The child that comes out of me, uh, I have a son, but the child that comes out of me is going to be colored. You know that before you see the child. You don't know anything else you know is colored because it's coming out of me. And I think that the same is probably true of the work that we create. It, it's, it's coming out of us, and I don't think you have to deny it. Somebody said, well, now, what happens when you get a biracial or you get an American poem? But American poems are of color. We know that because this is not a white nation. This is a multicultural, multicolored nation. And anytime you go the multi, you have a color. Did I make sense? And I mean, no, I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm just saying the American experience is of color. And that's something that needs to be accepted. And it's something that needs to be embraced. And then we will find which color it is, because there are colors within the colors. That's Ezekiel, and there's a wheel in the wheel. There are things within the thing. And that, that, that works for me totally. Yeah. You know, it, it totally does. But uh, I don't think it is just colored because it's about something. I, I think that it's, it's who... It's who you are, and I think that you are. I think everybody ought to be able to be who they are, and to be proud of uh, of who they are. I think that that's uh, 
I think that's very important. I play with myself. Let me share this one, too, just because we have an audience here. I'm always doing that. Right now, as you can see, last couple of years, I've been blonde. And I went blonde, which is actually bleached, because I had uh, been diagnosed with cancer. And I had an operation. I'm almost done this because it goes that way. But my left lung and two ribs were removed. So it goes without saying that I looked really bad. I mean, because it was a serious operation. I was in the hospital for uh, like a month. I did not, speaking of my same mother, I did not want my mother to see me looking like that because I knew that it would distress her because I, I had to look like I was near death and I probably pretty much was. And so I was trying to think of what could I do that would make me look better. And of course, being black, if I, if I go blonde, I pick up an instant tan. <laughs> yeah, you do. You just automatically, you know, you look healthy and, 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 and really cool. And I wanted to share that with, 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 with my friends who are white because maybe they're going to have lung cancer one day. So this I share. If you who are white have lung cancer and you don't want your mother to think you look bad, braid your hair. That's, that's... It's automatic. You look great. And everybody will notice something about you without knowing why. So I just thought I'd share that. That's a, and that's a good light-skinned person, non-cancer move, too. <laughs> yeah. It's like passing, it's like the moonwalk and passing mix. And you but, yeah, no, it, it's great, though. I love that. You, you, um, speaking of Toni Morrison earlier, you once said that um, um, novelists from the 70s and 80s and 60s, like Morrison and um, eventually Gloria Naylor, benefited from the audiences that poetry had prepared for them can you speak a little bit about the how? Because it happens again and again. Sure. But we were senior. I mean, there's no question about that. We are, and, and, and saying we, I'm speaking for not me, Nikki, but the poets. We are the children, actually, of Langston Hughes. And it was Langston who, one, he couldn't drive. And everybody, you know, people don't realize that. It was Langston, actually, who said that the, that, that the issue in the South will be joined on buses. And the reason, if you read Langston, you'll, you'll run into that essay. And the reason that he knew that is that he caught buses, because nobody else did. But Langston also got a Rosenthal uh, uh, Foundation uh, uh, grant. And he did buy a car, but then he had to ask one of his friends to drive him, because he never did learn to drive. But in Harlem, particularly, Langston went around reading his poetry. He went into bars, he went into the Y, he went, and of course, every year he took the a grand tour which we do sort of a modified way. I'd love to recreate that tour at some point because he went, he literally came down to St. Aug and then went over to Atlanta, stopped in Savannah, went over to Atlanta and went all the way out to California. He wintered in California and came back through that way, which was good because it said you can earn a living. You can, and as I say, you're not going to get rich. It's not a poet in this room thinks they are, but it, you can earn a living and get your work out. Langston also taught us sell what you can and give the rest of it away. And he was right. So we were the children. So when black arts came up, and black arts, as we know, is finished because we can now define it. But when black arts came up, we were out reading. We, we read in, 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 in Small's Paradise. We read in Dickie Wells. You know, we read in bars. We read every place. And as we did, we were selling. We were selling them for like a dollar. You know, and you, you're not making any money, but you're, again, getting your, your workout. Liberty House in, uh, in Harlem, Yvette uh, Leroy ran Liberty House. We had a couple of other bookstores. Of course, the, the iconic Michaud's bookstores, which doesn't just piss you off that the state decides to build an office building, and the only place they can build an office building is in the oldest bookstore in America. You know, that just makes you crazy, you know, and, and everybody's lucky that black people are, are saner than we appear to be because, you know, you have all of those blocks in Harlem, yeah. all of those blocks, but they have to have 125th and 7th. No, this is the only place we can build it. And that's what makes people angry, and that's what makes us dislike people. And, and that was crazy, but they did. They took Michaud's bookstore out. And, of course, Mr. Michaud was, what, 96, but he died. And now, of course, Betty's gone. Uh, Louis Jr. is, uh, Louis III, rather, is, is, is still around. But the bookstore is gone, and it was a great, it was a great bookstore. So, um, yeah, Michelle's bookstore is great. I've only seen the photograph. There's a book out, by the way, uh, uh, everybody, uh, and, it, and it's called Louis Michaud. And it's by his niece, who lives in um, Arizona. And she did 
his his biography, and it's, it's like a literary biography, but she talked to all of the people that, that, that are alive. So she, she talked to the people at Malcolm, because you know Malcolm hung around in the bookstore, and of course she had the way that you know, for those of you who don't know Michelle's bookstore, it, it was wonderful. If you wrote anything, you wanted your book in Michelle's. So when my first book came out, Black Feeling, Black Talk, I drove up to to New York, and I, I used to carry the books around myself. I published my, and it's really funny that publishing has now come back around because I, pub, I was my, my, I published myself. I did self-publishing, and then I got out of that business, came in. So I had these, and I asked Mr. Michaud if he would carry the books, and he was like, "Yeah, and the book's selling for a dollar, so I'm losing money because I'm selling them at." 30% discount, right? So I'm losing three, 30 cents every time I sell a book for a dollar, which was okay. I went back up to check in a couple of weeks or so, and Mr. Michaud said, Giovanni, he called me Giovanni, Giovanni, guess what? And I said, what, Lewis? He said, your book got stolen. <laughs> and I said, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. He said, no, no, baby, that means they're reading you. <laughs> So I was totally, totally thrilled. And Mr. Michaud, well, I learned to appreciate people who steal books. And, well, they want the book. And Mr. Michaud had uh, coffee from uh, the Black Star Line, Marcus Garvey's, and he had it in the back. And only the really important people were ever invited. And after about a year, Mr. Michaud said, would you, would you like to just stay around after the bookstore, after we close? And I thought, he's going to ask me if I want coffee. And I said, yeah, I, uh, I, I have a little time. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I was trying to be cool. And we, he made coffee. And I had a cup of that iconic coffee. And it was just, they're just little things that make you know that, yes, this, this is a good profession. This, this, is a, this is a nice thing to do. I, I really did. I loved it. I really did. And it's on. Um... That's a perfect segue. It's also the famous bookstore. You see Malcolm giving the speeches in front sure. of the mural and all the famous photographs, um, which segues just perfectly. You hated Spike Lee's Malcolm X. You <laughs> even take it to task. You rewrite it for the most part at the beginning in yes. Racism 101, which is that's, that's brilliant, right? That writing is feminine, cinematic, etc. Then did you stop watching Spike after that? Because then he made a film about lesbians who get knocked up by a black man in order to make babies. Did you see that one? And he mixes in the Watergate. Did you see that? She hate me? No, you didn't see that. You got to see it. I saw, um, which I really loved, uh, Get on the Bus. Yeah, Get on the Bus. And I appreciate it. Um, Spike gave me a shout out. I thought that was wonderful. And uh, I I really loved Four Little Girls. Yeah. I thought that was just uh, a a brilliant film. And I liked um, um, Katrina. Mm-hmm, the first mm-hmm. Katrina. But I don't see that many movies. Do you know? And I'm looking at Finney because she's an old friend and I haven't seen her in a long time. So I, and she's in my sight. So if you wonder why I keep looking this way, it's just because she's there. But in the last three months, I saw more films than I have seen in the last five years. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I seldom go to the movies. I sometimes buy them. But all of a sudden, well, you had Viola Davis, so you had to go see Viola. And then, you know, once you do that, you, you, you say, oh, I want to see Hugo. I want to see, you know, and you start to, and it's like, oh, movies are fun. I grew up in the age of segregation. And where I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, when I lived with my grandparents, you, you went to the, the only theater you could go to was a Bijou. And what you had to do was you go in the front and buy your ticket, and then you walk around back, and then you walk up, 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 up. It makes you crazy. I mean, just totally makes you crazy. And I learned to hate movies. And the big theater in town was called the Tennessean. And, of course, I had total disdain for the Tennessean. Now, eight years ago, I was invited to give a poetry reading at the Tennessean. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I went. I would have gone, you know, if somebody cut both legs off, I would have popped in there, you know. <laughs> And, of course, you see it, and you see that it's just a theater. You know, and, and, and why would someone wake up in the morning and say, we're not going to let colored people come in here, as if they were doing us a favor, you know? But I learned to hate movies. And so I'm, I'm just now at 68, and I'm a grandmother, so that's good. Maybe I'll be able to take my granddaughter to a movie, because I don't do movies very much, though I have been doing them lately. And I don't do amusement parks at all, because we could only go to amusement parks on Juneteenth. And I thought, no, there is no way that this is going to be fun, that this one day you're going to let me, for the hard money, that hard-earned money that I have, spend it with you because you want my money. And I don't do amusement parks. And, of course, I, I grew up with uh, uh, Kings Island. And I did want my son to go. I didn't want my son to hate anything that I hate. And so I had friends that 
enjoyed amusement parks, and so he would go with Connie and the girls. But uh, I hate shit like that, you know, on a roller coaster. You, you know, you're scared to death any damn way. You're peeing all over yourself. And, you know. You called, you called Denzel's Malcolm X a doofus. That was the word. Nobody's ever called Denzel doofus on stage. Well, that was a doofus. Come on now. You saw the film. And uh, it wasn't personal, and, and I love Denzel. For a lot of reasons. I, I love the great debaters, speaking of, of Melvin Tolson, mm-hmm. and that was what that was about. But Denzel is just a good guy. I mean, there's just no... Mm-hmm. If Paulette gets tired of him, she can call me. I will take him and... <laughs> never look back. No, he's a good guy. But uh, I just thought it was... This, this, the, Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, and, and this is not Nikki fighting that battle, but these are two Titans. Is that the word, Titans? T-I-T-A-N-S. These were two great men. Mm -hmm. And to reduce these differences in the way that it was done, it was a disservice to both men. No matter what you think about Mr. Muhammad, he's a great man. Mm -hmm. It it, it takes a great man to pull a great organization together. Malcolm obviously is going to go beyond Mr. Muhammad. There's no question. He's going to see things, and he's going to see things in a different way. What I regret is that others take advantage of these differences to use it as an opportunity for violence, to kill Malcolm, and then to try to blame, they, they did that, to kill Malcolm and try to blame Mr. Muhammad is the same as killing Tupac and trying to blame Biggie. And if you go for that kind of stuff, you spend all your life fighting with your friends and not knowing who the real enemy is. And so I, 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 resented, I resented the movie dealing with that. I resented the fact that Malcolm X only married one woman who happens to be my sorority sister, but that's not why, I just that she is, was. And Betty was a good woman, so why don't we get a scene where he kisses her? Mm-hmm. That, that's what I'm saying, because he married her, he loved her, they had six, four, how many girls did they have? Four girls. They had four children, so we know four times he kissed her. So we... <laughs> Come on. It, it just was so unfair not to show him in love with this woman because he was. I mean, clearly, clearly he was. And, and I, I get tired of that kind of, we, we, we miss the loveliness of that. And I, I had the occasion, uh, which doesn't happen that often, and they try to avoid it, but uh, we were down in Texas. I happened to be in Texas. Well, I didn't happen to be in Texas. Finish your sentence, Nikki. When the, mouth, when the Langston Hughes stamp came out, everybody wanted to be in Harlem, and quite naturally. And so they needed somebody to be in Texas because the, attorney, the uh, postmaster general was going to be in Texas. So they called and said, Nikki, will you go to Texas? Well, somebody had to go, so it was like not a big deal, and I went because I knew I also get to sit next to the postmaster general because he couldn't get away. And I said... You have to take advantage of these opportunities. And so I just said to him, you know, when are we going to get the Malcolm and Betty stamp? And he goes, huh? I said, shortly after we get the Gwendolyn Brooks and Margaret Walker stamp, or do you think uh, before? (laughs) I just thought I'd mention it to him because I really hated the Malcolm stamp because Malcolm was an incredibly good-looking man, as was as was, was Langston. And, of course, the stamp is ugly. But we need a Betty stamp with Malcolm because they were partners. We need a Gwen Brooks stamp with Margaret because they were bookends and an incredible, we really do, an incredible, incredible period. We need a Coretta stamp with, Matt, with, with Martin because she was a good partner to Martin and she stood, she stood for a lot and she, she was a strong woman. And I think, why, why, why don't we get these people on stamps? We need them on stamps. Of course, we need a Tupac stamp. I mean, you, you know that, we need a Tupac stamp because oh, that kid just stood for so much. So, you know, put a $5 Tupac stamp on there and see who buys it. I'll buy it. The hip hop generation, Jay-Z will buy 10,000 of them, you know. Do it and, and, and give it to schools or do something with it. But I, I just think we need to continue to honor the great people. And these, are, these, these people are great people. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't we honor them with a stamp or something? Why wouldn't we do that? So if you're sitting next to the postmaster general, you know, remind them of things, because it's always fun to see them like, oh, yeah, well, I have to think about it. <laughs> I love it. I was in a good mood then. <laughs> I usually am. You beat Barack yet? President Obama? No, I have not met the president. Mm-mm. You said um, somewhere, you said um, that 
maybe, I think it's in a conversation with Margaret Walter in Poetic Equation. You say, um, I hope that one day Africa means to blacks what Israel means to Jews. Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Closer, farther away, will it happen? Is it possible? Well, that book was written 20 years ago, and obviously now we have to consider that Israel, uh, and I mean, I know more, and, and, and I'm not doing any disclaimers, but um, it's just so clear that Earth is Earth. Yeah. And so it, it becomes less and less meaningful, at least to me, uh, uh, nationhood designations. And I'm a space freak, and I've, I've, I've gotten even more. We were laughing at, at uh, lunch because, I, I mean, I can quote, you know, Star Trek things. I, I just love it. I, I, I love Kirk and them. I do. I'm, I'm a big fan. But, you know, what leaves Earth? belongs to Earth. There, there's no American satellite, there's no Chinese satellite, there's no Russian satellite. It's the Earth. And I think the same way of being on Earth. I'm a big fan of uh, what we're calling now illegal immigrants. I think that uh, borders are meaningless and what we need to know, the reason we need a border is so that we can know who we're looking for if we're looking for somebody. If somebody is hurt or somebody needs that, that's all it is. It's a designation. So I'm not, I'm not willing for any money of mine to go to Arizona or Texas or California or something to put some border up so that somebody's going to have to hurt themselves trying to get here because as long as we continue to send people out, people will continue to come in, and I think that's a good idea. I know immigrants uh, are, are the salt in the stew. They are what makes... They're, they're what makes it taste right. They're, they are what brings it out. And they bring the energy and they bring a, a, a good thought. And so I can say, well, they take our jobs, but we take other people's jobs too. So I'm not, I mean, I'm just not into that kind of mentality. Before Def Jam, before Kaveh Kanem, before The Dark Room, before Slam, before anything I've seen poets do on, in the sort of Broadway way. Huh? You want a caution, you want the Tonight Show, correct? Mm-hmm. There's no record of that on YouTube anywhere. I'm no. I'm looking for it. No, not at all. No. But what was it like? I had a dress on. <laughs> I, have, I so seldom wear a dress, no, I did that. My sister's like, oh, I couldn't believe you had a dress on. That was fun. I mean, you know, you, I say yes to everything. I, I, I laugh because I, I am, uh, I'm not wealthy at all. Uh, I, I earn a living. I'm not going to starve to death, and I, I don't even think like that. But I did think as I was trying to deal with legacy issues, actually, what can I give back? And so what I did was I started, and, and it is small because I just it, it's, it's worth about a million dollars now, but I started a, a little foundation, and you all know enough to know Bill Gates, and they have real foundation. But I started a little foundation. It's called The Answer is Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it's because what I really, really like, uh, Lamar knows because uh, he, he's my student at Virginia Tech, and what I started it for was so that we could buy wine. <laughs> I did. It's very important because Virginia Tech won't let you buy wine. So I thought, well, they will if I start a foundation there. Mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, that, that's, that's, that's what, we, um, what we did there. But it's all about, uh, uh, I'm trying to say, giving back something. And it just makes you happy when you can do, you know, you can't do everything. I mean, I'm not a big number about any number of things. You know, you have to know who you are and where you are and in, 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 in that thing. But it's just nice to be able to say yes. So I say yes to everything, and I always have. So when the Tonight Show called, I read Eco Tripping. Mm-hmm. And um, when they called, I put on my dress. I bought a new pair of shoes, and uh, I, I, get, I went and read. You know, I did a little stupid dress. And uh, I've done a lot of shows. I just did Bill Moyers recently, uh, mostly because Jennifer... His wife is my fan, Bill, and give a damn. But, you know, Jennifer, like, you have to have Nikki. And you're, okay, honey. And so <laughs> that's how we got it. But I, I enjoy it, and uh, I try to go, you know, if you call me and say, you know, Nikki, you know, we're having a reading in too. you think you can make it? I say, well, let me look. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm just coming back from Greece, which I enjoyed. I'm too old. I should have done, oh, you got to do Greece in your 50s. At, at, I mean, I'm 68. And you're going up 45 degrees, right? So they never had to worry who's bringing up the rear because it was always Nikki. Because <laughs> you just, I mean, you know, it's marble. You know, they lived way up because they were barbarians. I know that they said, they were, but they weren't. They're barbarians, and they were way up so they could kill people coming down. And so if you want to go see it, you have to climb way up there. It's really nice once you get up there. It really is. And you see the olive trees, and you know, really nice. But I would get up to the top, and I'd be in a sweat. 
I lost like seven pounds in Greece because just the walking, you know, just, just, just kills you. And I had my heavy boots on and stuff. One day it rained, and I remembered that someone had broken their back climbing up to the Acropolis, had slipped on one of those, you know, and, and broke their back. Well, I didn't want to break my back because in my age, that's, that's, I, I might as well shoot me. And so I had to walk very carefully. So I'm just saying, for all of you that are thinking about Athens and Corinth and Sparta, you know, and all of that stuff, you have to go now. And you say, well, Nikki, I can't afford it. Well, what do you care? Charge it. And if you have a job, you'll get it. And if you don't, what the hell? <laughs> you have to go now. That's the truth. <laughs> you do. It, it was great. I enjoyed it. And by the way, I've been in riots. There were no riots in Athens. Those were people who were just walking around saying things like, you know, we're sick of being screwed. But no, America has riots. You shoot people, the cops shoot back, people are throwing things, they're burning things. There was no riot. We were in Athens. We kept looking for like, where's the riot? Where's the riot? You know, and skinheads were there. Were there. I could read that. It said Pitbull. So that's how you know they were the skinheads. So, oh, I've seen skinheads in Germany. I've seen skinheads in Belgium. Those were serious skinheads. They would have taken just me because I'm colored and beaten me. I've seen skinheads. These people are Mediterranean. The Greeks are Mediterranean. So their idea of, you know, we're having a riot is we don't like you. <laughs> we were perfectly safe. I mean, my God. <laughs> you say Columbia University still owes you a they MFA. Do. They do. And you also give advice in your book about on campus racism, how to deal with it. <laughs> Could you, did you not have that kind of advice for yourself? And, I didn't. And look, who was that told you you were MFA? Richard who? Who was that? Oh, he was my uh, Richard Elman. Mm. We all know Richard yeah. Elman. He's such a great writer. <laughs> Mr. Elman told me I couldn't write. You know how you're sitting there talking to somebody you know is a fool? He was, um, <laughs> well, you have to know. That's one thing my father did. He said, you have to know what a fool looks like. Mr. Elman took me out to lunch, and he said, you know, Nikki, uh, you know, we've been reading you, and um, you, you just, uh, you, you're you just not going to really be a writer, you know, and I, I just thought, you know, I should let you. I said, thanks, Rich, you know, because I, last I heard you were teaching, I'm learning, so I, <laughs> I would never say that to anybody. Why would you say something like that? But I knew Richard was crazy, so I just let it go. I published my book and went on, but Columbia owes me a degree, and every time I go to Columbia, I remind them of that, because I was in the MFA program, and you were supposed to, it's a two-year program, like most MFA programs, and you, at the end, you were supposed to have a publishable book. Well, I published the book, right? So, bingo, I have done what I'm supposed to do. I'm gone now, but send me my degree, and they were like, no, because it's a two-year program. I said, no, it was a publishable book program, <laughs> right? And so we fight about it. Of course, they're never going to do that. But uh, actually, that's not true. I would imagine if I die tragically, they'll do it right away. Mm -hmm. And if I die of old age, isn't that the truth? We have to face that one. Plane crashes, Columbia be right there. We're giving Nikki her degree. Well, I'm, I'm not against stealing things. And if I ever get a job at Columbia, I'm going to steal you one. You tell them. I want my degree. But uh, no, it, it's fun. I mean. The thing that I like about the MFA programs and those of you who are in it is if you're smart, you're writing your book because mm -hmm. that's what you're there to do. If you happen to end up teaching somebody something, goody. If you happen to end up learning something, goody. But you're there to write your book, mm -hmm. and that's what you have to do. Most of you won't, let me be honest with you. And the reason that you won't is that you're afraid it's not going to be good enough which being mostly what you are, you keep it from being good enough because you're afraid it won't be. Did I just make sense? Yeah, that's true. You have to write your book. Don't, don't even worry about who's reading it. Don't, and anybody's not telling you it's brilliant, you don't need that person in your life. <laughs> you just don't. You just don't. No, get rid of them. Because what you need is somebody to say, oh, I love it. I love what you're doing. Maybe they're lying. But if they love it, and then you start to love it, that love is going to come in. Maybe it's not the greatest American novel. Maybe it's not the greatest American poem. Who writes a great American poem, for God's sake? Nobody does. But it will be the love that you have to share. And if you get into that habit, then you have a career that is going to be meaningful to you, as opposed to a job that you could just as well have been at McDonald's flipping burgers. You have to have something that you care about. So you never said to Lamar Wilson, 
Baby, that's a bad point. Oh, no. Well, first of all, it's Lamar, so there were none. <laughs> and I read Miss Finney when she was 17. And remember, um, uh, 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 what's his name? Oh, no, no, no. The, he's a man. Uh, he was down there with us uh, from Washington, D.C. Sterling Brown was there. And Miss Finney came over, and, and, and Sterling and I were sitting there reading it. And one of her friends said, you're going to let them read your work? <laughs> but it was good. We both loved it. And the, the, the point is, if you bring, we will read. And our job is not to tell you what to do. Our job is to say, since you've done that, the next question so where are you going? What are you going to do with it? Finney must have a library. You could sell it one day and get rich. Because I think she's been keeping things since she was 10 years old or something like that. You know, now that you've got a big award, you can sell it <laughs> and go to Greece. And <laughs> but the point is, you have to let people read it. And the people who are reading it ought to have enough sense to know if there's absolutely nothing there, you're the last person that needs to tell them that. They can read. Mm. So what you're trying to do is help them to find what it is that is working. And when you do that, then they pick up on that and they pick up on that. Mostly what works for all of you who are writers is the courage you have to do it. That, 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 that's, that's what you're doing. You're doing the love and you're doing the courage. If you do that, you're a whole human being there. And so what, when you ask me to spend time, which is the only thing I cannot regain, when you ask me to spend time, I'm spending time with a real human being. I'm not spending time with somebody who's gaming me. I'm spending time with somebody who's trying to help me understand the world and is trying to help themselves. Then it's, it's a fair exchange. And that's what writers offer, don't you think? I agree. No, I agree. I'm just a little meaner. That's all. Uh, <laughs> abolish the tenure system. Oh, yeah. Get rid of the migrant worker adjunct position. Toss out college sports. I like all that, actually. <laughs> but I like. But the sports aren't college. And so uh, I have modified, you know, you're talking about one-on-one -on -one now, but I've modified that to pay the athletes because, uh, first of all, most of our athletes have children, men and women, uh, at Virginia Tech, any place else. They, they have children. They, they have to pay. They, right. they need to take care of their children. It's a billion-dollar sport. Basketball and football are billion-dollar sports. Uh, track isn't, but uh, it's still a lot of money, and those kids need their money, so pay them. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, stringing people along that, that the instructors do the heavy lifting and the professoriate does what? The research? I'm, I'm not a fan of that. Right. And so I think that needs to be equaled out. I would tenure the coaches and let the rest of us struggle. Because mm. the coaches need to be tenured so that they know that if they have a bad season, they won't lose their job. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what a bad season is for a writer. But would you pay, <laughs> would you pay the coach a million dollars, two million dollars? <clears throat> I wouldn't. But then I don't do a job that mm -hmm. 70, in, 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 in the case of Virginia Tech, uh, our stadium seats 70,000 people. In the case of Clemson, it's 100,000. Michigan is more. I mean, so if I did a job that that many people watched me do it, maybe I would want more money. But I, uh, I think money is important. I have, I've lived long enough. There was a time that I didn't. Mm -hmm. Let me be fair about that. Just, it was just money. But I have lived long enough to know that it, people need money. It's, it's a system under which uh, we live. But there has to be more equity than we see. I'm not a fan of billionaires. I am a fan of millionaires. I wouldn't mind if I was ever able to join them. I'd, I'd be a happy millionaire. But uh, there's nothing you can do with a billion dollars except buy and sell people, and that's a bad idea. But, you know, it's a lot you can do, $10 million. If I had $10 million, I could spend it. I mean, somebody said, ha, Nikki, I'm going to give you $10 million. You've got a year to spend it. Oh, I am so not having anything. I mean, I, I, oh, I could do No, I'm black, first of all. We spend money. <laughs> no, think about it. Look at what we've done with almost nothing. You give a Negro a, a, a dollar, you can spend a dollar fifty cents all day long. And I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. So, yeah, I could do that, you know. But I could. But I don't think that I can earn it. I don't think that I can teach a class, which I enjoy doing. I teach mostly undergraduates. I really love undergraduates. They're just so sweet. And you say, you know, I, I just gave them a thing because we're doing the migration. And, and they had to be a railroad, right? <laughs> and so I wanted them to do that, to 
be the car that takes someone to freedom. But we also know that some of the sheriffs, particularly in, in North, North um, Florida, would get on the trains and take people off and beat them and stuff. So you had to, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it, 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 it's a sad history. But I wanted my kids to be that train. And of course, what they all wanted, which I love so much, they all wanted to be the one that got them in. <laughs> yeah, the sheriff got on the train, but they hit them. They did. I mean, it's just wonderful kind of things that happened with it. But I, I, I love undergraduates because they'll try anything. Right. And I wish that our graduate students had a little more self-confidence so that they took their talent and pushed it just a little bit more to the edge, yeah. just a little bit more to outside of their yeah. comfort zone. I think that's important for any writer, whether it's me, you, anybody else. You have to get just a little bit on that edge that, that, that scares you. Just If you're not being scared of your own work, you're not doing anything. You, you really aren't. You just have to push it. If that's what you can do, then you say, now what can't I do? That's where you want to go. That, it's space. You want to go to that next spot that's a little dangerous, but then that puts you in rarefied air. Right. And in life, sometimes it's hard to go in art where you haven't had to defend or go or care for in life. It's, you know, unless you're just out there or blazing. All it's just hard. Um, you said poetry is the is the associate is an association of disassociated ideas. Yeah, it is. Do you still feel that way? Oh, definitely. Also, yeah. yeah. Poetry is the salt and chocolate. The salt and chocolate. You know how you and you, you, you do that and all of a sudden you right? That's what poetry we, we put things together that, that don't normally go together and you end up with this really wonderful thing that's very different. That's what you're trying to do. Poetry's not there to make sense, it's there to excite senses. Mm-hmm. And when you look back, black feeling, black talk, yeah. black judgment, recreation, my home, when you look back, you, you, like, as if it were a mirror, you recognize the Nikki each time, and you can see the progression, the changes, and you're, sure. you're okay with it all. Oh, I'm, I, I, I don't have any problem, but I always thought what I would want to do with this career if I was fortunate enough to have one because this was way early, is that you'd be able to take any of my books and just toss them in the air, and no matter where they came down, if you could pick them up, you could be able to see where they fit in this puzzle that is me. So that anything that you... You can always see where I've learned something, where I've grown, where I'm in more control. So from my first book, which would be Black Feeling, Black Talk, to my latest book of mine, which is actually... um, Bicycles, which are love poems, but I'm beginning to work on the poem that you heard, Note mm-hmm. to the South, You Lost. You can see what I did with war, because I just love, I just love what I did with war, because everybody asks, like, war is fun. And war is lice and, and fleas and flies. The first thing you hear are the buzz of flies on a battlefield. Mm-hmm. And, and that needs to be acknowledged. There's nothing fun about that. There's nothing fun about being shot. There's nothing fun about shooting somebody. War is a horrible thing for everybody. And so I, I wanted, there was a time I would have said that differently, but I just wanted to take it back to, because I had it in my head, the turkey buzzards. Can you imagine? In, in, in Virginia, we were fighting the Battle of Manassas, and turkey buzzards, you know, they were just standing there watching. And when all was gone, when all was finished, when the shooting stopped, when the cannon stopped, they went and they ate. And they ate. They ate. That's, that's what happened. And this is, this is not a good thing. So I'm just thinking from here to there, I think you can see my maturity. Right. And I hope that I'm able to continue to show that I'm growing. You know, and if, if I stop growing, I would hope that I have enough sense to stop writing. Well, the people love you and you worry the ancestors well. Continue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune into our website at www.awpwriter.org.